with less than a month to go in the legislative session, Missouri's lawmakers are headed toward some contentious and consequential debates. One of the people that's been at the center of it all is Senator Bill Eigel, a freshman from St. Charles County. He joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking to break things down. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is taking some well-deserved time off. She'll be back in early May after a what I assume is a very enjoyable voyage throughout Europe. So I'm flying solo today, and using the magic of radio, we have as our guest from our Jefferson City studios... Bill Eigel. A, a senator from St. Charles County. Um, before we get into any issues, just remind our listeners what your district encompasses. I, I think it's about half or a little less than half of St. Charles County ge- geographically. That's correct. And thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, my district basically covers the eastern half of St. Charles County. So uh, Senator Bob Onder covers the western half, and uh, I'm the new senator on the eastern side. You are the less senior senator from St. Charles um, as as. I guess you are called on the Senate floor. The junior member from St. Charles, I, I'm not I'm not sure what descriptor they would use. They, they've got several of them out there, but they're all correct. So um, we're recording this podcast on Wednesday at 10.52 a.m. And when I woke up this morning, I found out that the Senate was still in session as of like 6.30 or 7 in the morning, um, which I wouldn't say happens every day, but... It's still occasional when there's a hot or controversial issue. I guess my first question to you is, did you get any sleep last night? And will that make this podcast more entertaining that you'll be kind of <laughs> rambling in a, in a tired haze, basically? Well, uh, <laughs> we certainly there, there hasn't been much sleep for any of us today. And uh, I think that I stayed up later uh, last night or this morning, I guess I should say, than I have in a long time. But, uh, you know, we're, we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed here now, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to another great day in Jefferson City. Well, kind of explain why the Senate was up so late. Um, um, I, think, I think I know the issue, but if you can explain to our listeners what has caused so much contention, that would be appreciated. Well, I think this it, it all centers around our efforts to balance the state budget. You know, there's one constitutional duty that we have, and that is to balance the state budget, to pass a budget, and to make sure that we're we're efficiently using the taxpayer dollars uh, each each fiscal year. And in particular, uh, in order to make the numbers work, uh, we were looking at uh, reducing um, one of the tax credit programs, one of the welfare tax credit programs, that would have gone uh, in particular to uh, some low-income seniors, and there was a heated debate about whether or not that was appropriate in our attempts to balance the budget. And we were up pretty late last night. And I think ultimately, uh, when we got to 6.30, we decided as a body that we were going to set that aside, uh, given the concerns that the body was voicing, and look for 
the uh, drawbacks in expenditures elsewhere in the budget. And the good news is we were looking for about $50 million in uh, cutbacks, and we have a twenty, nearly a $28 billion budget to work with. So I think we're confident we can get there without having to pass the uh, the circuit, t- circuit breaker tax credit, as it was known. Uh, from my understanding, and this is not a new effort, I think that this was done a couple of years ago. What proponents of scaling back this tax credit want to do is no longer make it available for, for renters. Is that is that a fair assessment of what's going on here? They're, they're correct. Most of those tax credits were going uh, directly to the landlords that owned the property. So there was some concern that uh, many of the folks that were claiming this tax credit were not directly benefiting out of it. And it was kind of getting lost in the overall uh, the shuffle of folks paying rent. But there was a concern that uh, this would be ultimately a benefit that was taken away from a group of folks that uh, were more vulnerable than some of the other folks when it comes to our budget. So I think we ultimately moved away from that. And, and like I said, it's a twenty, nearly a $28 billion budget, and this was about a $50 million uh, difference in the numbers. And so we moved away from that and we're confident we could find that elsewhere. And I think that's, you know, the budget committee, uh, they, they, if I got one hour of sleep in the past, uh, past day, they probably got no hours of sleep and they're busy finding that $50 million right now. And, and just to play devil's advocate from what I saw on Twitter and in news accounts, opponents of cutting the circuit breaker have said that, you know, you should look for other ways to, to cut down the budget rather than taking away this incentive for low-income seniors, and and some have, you know, contended that this could put the the seniors' ability to live in some of these places in jeopardy. What's what's kind of your take on some of those those arguments? Because I'm sure you heard a lot of that last night. I, I did. I'm not sure I agree with that assessment. Again, this was being claimed by a lot of folks where the benefit was never even directly seen by the individual that was claiming the tax credit. So I'm not sure that is entirely the case. But what I am sure about is that, like I said, in a in such a large budget, there's a lot of areas that we can uh, make the government more efficient. And we were ultimately talking about a fraction of the overall budget. So I think that that was ultimately the realization the body came to was that if this was going to be something that was uh, as contentious and as concerning to the body as it was, then we we stepped back from that and wanted to re-engage in, in, a di- in different areas. So I recall about two or three months ago that the Governor Eric Greitens put out a, a statement saying that he was going to use $52 million in tobacco company settlement money to undo $41 million of a proposed $52 million reductions in Medicaid funding for in-home care services in the next fiscal year. And I'm, I'm reading that verbatim from the Jefferson News Tribune from February 24, 2017. Mm-hmm. I kind of got some indications, though, that some legislators didn't really want to take that path because it was kind of a, a, a short-term fix for a longer-term problem. I'm just curious why that hasn't really been taken up as a possible solution. And by that, I mean what the governor talked about in that statement. Well, you know, I've been a guy that, that's come in and kind of looked at the budget as something that beyond just the, the core numbers, I think we're doing a bad job prioritizing what the people have t- indicated to me, at least my constituents have, that we should be coming here to Jefferson City and, and, and spending the taxpayer money on. So, whether that's uh, K-12 education, you know, there's still conversations going on about 
uh, whether or not we can and should fully fund the educational formula. I'm a proponent of that, the, the transportation dollars that are in there, uh, whether we should be funding transportation, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about in the program today. I have a lot of concerns about where we're spending the money and what makes the most sense and what should be at the top of the priority list. Um, and it's been a it's been a struggle because every legislator comes in the door and they have a different take on what they think those priorities are. So the governor, I'm, I'm aware of when the governor did take that tobacco settlement and he he rolled it back into restoring some of the cuts that he had previously made. And I, that though, as you said, that was a $50 million uh, decision item on the governor's part, but the reality is we have a $28 billion budget. I don't see any of the problems facing our state as a problem of not having enough revenue. I see them as simply as problems of not prioritizing who should be at the top of the list and on down. From looking at the uh, committees that you're a member on, I don't think you're a member of the Appropriations Committee, but that's correct. Re- re- irregardless, which I'm not sure is a word or not, I'm just going to say it is for now, um, pretty much every senator plays a role in, in shaping the budget because there are 34 people, um, and, and because the body is a lot smaller than the House, they have a greater opportunity to affect where some of this money goes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the Senate should be getting the budget in the next week or two. Mm-hmm. This has been a, a probably a more difficult budget um, cycle than than most years because of an unexpected drop in revenue. What are you kind of expecting when the Senate starts dealing with some of these budget bills head on? And and is there anything that you would like to particularly change that you think you'll you'll find some success in in in, in redirecting some money? Well, it, first of all, let me say that it's. I agree with you. I want to acknowledge what you pointed out, which is basically some of the tension that exists within the legislature and the governor's office surrounding where we're going to ultimately dedicate the dollars in this budget. But I can't. Whenever I, whenever I hear questions like this, I'm always I'm always kind of taken aback because, in spite of all the talk about cuts, in spite of all the talk about drawbacks, about uh, eliminating programs, the fact is that we're going to spend a record amount of taxpayer dollars this year. We have never had more dollars coming into the state that have been taken out of the bank accounts of Missouri citizens that we're going to use and spend on their behalf out, out of Jefferson City. So you're right in that the government is a natural institution where there can never be enough money for all the programs that government itself would want or uh, could possibly pursue. But at the same time, we've been given more resources to accomplish precisely that than we ever have before. So that's why I I really struggle with the fact that in, in such a large budget, we struggle to fully fund the educational formula. We struggle to fully fund educational transportation dollars. We struggle to find money to uh, rebuild our roads and bridges. When the people of Missouri are doing their part by providing us more resources than we've ever had before, and yet there's always the talk of the, the conversation has always been based in terms of, are we going to have enough money this year? And so it's, it's not about when we say cuts, when you say cuts and you're asking me about the governor's cuts, we're actually not talking about true cuts relative to, say, last year's budget. We're actually talking about a reduction in the amount of growth that we're seeing. Well, I think in the instance of higher education, though, I think they are actual, some of the colleges and institutions are actually seeing less money, especially in general revenue than they did in the prior year. I mean, that's what I saw from looking at the the numbers. Um, and it, it doesn't seem like those cuts, which I think are actual cuts, are, are going to be substantially reversed when the budget ends. Because as I kind of mentioned before, higher education is funded with general revenue. And when there's not 
a good budget situation, general revenue is the e- things funded with general revenue is the easiest things to to, to reduce. Mm-hmm. So so what do you kind of think about that situation? Given that a lot of Republicans and Democrats often cite bolstering higher education institutions as a priority. Well, it, you know, and I've heard that. I've been part of those conversations before. My question is, and, and uh, for the listeners, we we spend about nine hundred million dollars in higher education uh, in any annual year, and that number that we're putting into the budget, I think, is going to be lower than last year. But that number that's going to go into higher education is going to be higher than the number from two years ago. So uh, that I, I say that just to kind of as uh, to set the, the the perspective on where higher education funding is. Now I, I, I'm certainly a fan of, of higher education spending, but the reality is if I'm put in a situation where I have to choose between higher education spending or K-12 education spending, then I think the I think the people of Missouri have asked us to make the tough call that we should take care of primary and secondary education first. I also think that you know as another example. Um, as much as I am a fan of higher education spending, I think that uh, we have a responsibility to take care of transportation. And again, I know I don't, I don't want to steal the thunder for later in the show. Well, you're, we're but we're going to segue. We're going to segue into that after you make this yes. point. So you're an excellent segueer. So I, I want to just commend <laughs> you on that. But continue. Um, now, when it comes to higher education, you know, one of the things that my constituents did talk to me about was, and I heard this over and over and over, was the concern that parents were have about the rising costs of tuition. And what I'm seeing in higher education now is that the the record amounts of revenue that are able to go into our higher education institutions, whether it's a subsidy from the state or it's the Sally Mae debt programs that students and parents can take debt from to funnel in these educational institutions, are not necessarily going towards improving the education that our college students are experiencing. They're improving the quality of life that the college students are experiencing. That's why we're seeing an enormous explosion of construction across college campuses in the United States. You know, Mizzou, as an example, and, and there are a lot of good things coming out of Mizzou, but they've built a multi-million dollar Lazy River facility for the students to enjoy. And, and I'm nervous that all this money is going towards these higher educational facilities, and they're creating a quality of life that these students cannot reasonably expect to maintain when they graduate. So um, I think that there's a lot of, when, when we talk about higher education, identifying areas to cut in education is not an acknowledgement that we don't believe in higher education or that we don't believe that uh, higher education is important, but it's an identification that a lot of those dollars are not going towards actually improving the educational experience. And when it comes down to it, higher education is going to be prioritized somewhere below K-12 education, which is in our Constitution. And for someone like me, I I think that if we don't have the roads to connect our universities to the cities, the universities are going to be hard-pressed to operate. Well, I can just say with some certainty that that lazy river at Mizzou is completely responsible for my success as a radio journalist. (laughs) And and to be honest, I don't know how that was funded, whether they used their operating budget or whether there were some fees involved, but that's a discussion for another day. Yes, Because I do want to talk about transportation. Mm -hmm. This has been an issue that legislators from both parties have been talking about for years. Mm -hmm. They've brought up different ideas, whether it be raising the state's sales tax, a a proposal Mm -hmm. that was rejected pretty soundly in 2014, Mm -hmm. whether it be increasing the gas tax, whether it be instituting toll roads. And what, what I have found from talking with people is and then also from talking with MoDOT officials is I do think that there is a real need to spend more money to improve the state's road system. I just don't know if there's a great desire among Missouri residents to 
pay an extra fee or tax to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. I, I'm interested to hear your perspective on it from because from what I've heard and read, I think you, you want to take kind of a different tack to this entire issue than maybe some of the other legislators have. Absolutely. And, and you're right. I think that transportation, just like their concerns about higher education costs, transportation is something that my constituents spoke to me repeatedly about and wanted a solution on. However, they also caveated that with the fact that they're not interested in solutions that do two things. One, that create toll roads, which would increase an additional burden on the people of Missouri. And two, they did not want to see their their taxes go up. And, And I can't blame them because, as I said earlier in the program, Right now, the people of Missouri are sending more money to Jefferson City than they ever have before. And even if, uh, you know, a lot of folks are talking about, well, you know, we, we have a pretty low fuel tax here in the state of Missouri to relative to other states. Well, my response to that is twofold. One, just because the tax is low is not a reason to increase it. And two, even if we're play, paying a lower fuel tax in the state of Missouri, overall, once you throw in our income taxes and our sales taxes and our property taxes and our insurance taxes, and our cigarette taxes and all the other taxes that we pay, the overall burden that Missourians are pay- that Missourians are paying is greater than it's ever been. So I can't. I acknowledge. I resonate with the message that they don't want to continue to have to pay more because there's a frustration that politicians, uh, myself now included, that whenever we see a problem, a lot of times the knee-jerk reaction is to simply try to solve the problem by asking for more sacrifice from the from the citizens. And I think that we've got to get away from that. So that segues me, that brings me to, to my bill this year, uh, Senate Bill 428, which would have taken part of our record revenues in general revenue and dedicated them to transportation funding over the next 10 years. Now, what that would have meant would be about a $2.5 billion investment in our infrastructure from between now and the year 2027. And that would be critical because that would pay for not only the rebuild of an I-70, which could be eight lanes in between Kansas City and Wentzville, Missouri, but it would also pay for a half a billion dollars in investment in the numbered and lettered routes that are all over the state. So this would be a plan that everybody benefits from. And I think that we've got to be willing to prioritize the roads and have that discussion. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's been an idea that's been been brought up by a lot of your Republican colleagues. I think that the pushback is, and I'm, I'm sure you've realized this in your first few months, that um, people that want to construct roads are not the only entity that wants slices of general revenue dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there may be some resistance to that idea, because if you take money from general revenue and put it in the roads, that hypothetically means less money for for other things that use general revenue. Mm-hmm. Is is that been kind of what you've heard from people that don't like that idea? It it is and and I would say two things to that uh, because in the first question I always get and you hit on it is well if you're going to take this money and you're going to dedicate it to the roads what are you going to take it from? And so I t- say two things to that question. First, the amount of money that we'd be dedicating to roads which is about 200 million 200 million dollars a year starting next year increasing to 300 million dollars. That amount of money represents less than 2.5% of our total general revenue fund. Now, not only is it less than 2.5% of our total general general revenue fund, the amount of growth we're expecting to see next year alone in the consensus revenue estimate, estimate is about 3.8%. So this is really not a question of what are we going to cut from today's level. This may actually just be a question of how are we going to better manage the increases we're expecting to see in our general revenue fund. And the second thing that I would say to that is even if we do have to make cuts in area, 
I think the we, I interpreted the mandate that we heard on November 8th is that the people of Missouri wanted us to come down to Jefferson City and do business in a different manner, trying to solve the transportation problem by creating toll roads or increasing taxes is precisely the example of doing business in the old manner. We want to get out of that mindset and actually acknowledge that we're getting more money than we ever have before. This is not a money problem. The problem is being willing to prioritize something like something as important as our, as our roadway infrastructure where it needs to be so that it actually gets done. Another idea that has been floated by a, a few of your Republican colleagues is turning over some state roads to local jurisdictions, which, mm-hmm. again, it sounds like a, a easy proposition, but I would imagine that counties and cities that would take ownership of those roads are not exactly eager to pay for some of those things. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that because that could be another way to free up some money for, for transportation of some highways. Is that something that's been discussed or something that you philosophically would support? Or is, is that just running into too much opposition to be an attractive option right now? Well, I think there's a lot of yeses to those different questions. Uh, first of all, the yes, there are several plans that look at restoring some local controls to some of the miles. And yes, that by restoring, depending on which miles you restore and to what degree you restore them, I think that you can see some um, benefits in terms of efficiency of MoDOT. You know, MoDOT is managing 34,000 miles. That's the seventh largest in the entire nation. My question has always been, why does a state like Missouri, who is 19th in population and 19th in geographical size, managing the seventh largest uh, roadway system in the country? And the reason is, is because we're taking on more miles at the state level that other states aren't. So there are plans that reduce it different amounts of miles to local areas. My plan, uh, my bill, for, Bill 428, did restore a modest amount of those miles, and but specifically focused on miles that were not eligible for federal match dollars. So about half of our, our, our budget for roads comes from match dollars from the federal government. The more roads that we manage that at the state level that are not eligible for those match dollars makes MoDOT's job of ensuring that we get those federal match dollars more and more difficult. So restoring those roads, which by definition are the most uh, the least traveled, most remote roads in the state, uh, would make our make our system overall more more efficient. In addition, uh, the cost associated with restoring the mileage that I was talking about, which is about seven thousand of the thirty four thousand miles, is about twenty seven million dollars a year. That's what MoDOT is actually spending on those miles. Now, the increases that MoDOT or that the local cities and counties will expect to see through our current funding mechanisms that they get a piece of, which is fuel taxes, license fees, and uh, vehicle sales tax, are expected to grow by about 36 to $40 million a year over the next five years. So I think that we there is an answer where we could reasonably restore some of those miles to local areas without creating a new burden for cities and counties. But uh, to the final yes to all the questions you gave me is that, yeah, there's a lot of resistance to that in rural communities because they're concerned about what the impact may be. In fact, my bill, my bill, I, I didn't actually file my bill until almost two months into the session because I was waiting on this cost information for MoDOT to get to me because we hadn't had this conversation before. So this is new information that we're putting out there, and uh, I do think we need to have that conversation. What has been the reception of the the first bill that you talked about? I've kind of gotten the sense that it, it may not make it past the finish line in the in the finite amount of time we have left in the session. 
Well, unfortunately, like I said, I think that uh, unfortunately, and this was one of the news items from last week, uh, the Senate committee, Senate Transportation Committee, decided not to do pass uh, my bill and send it to the Senate floor for additional debate. You know, the Transportation Committee has uh, many members of uh, of the committee that are that represent rural areas, and they had a lot of concerns about that aspect of it in particular. And I thought that was unfortunate because uh, when that when that when that occurred. Uh, it was an indication that we were not going to get anything done on transportation again this year. And I've always been frustrated with transportation, not just since I've been a senator, but as I've been a candidate for office, because transportation is always that crisis that keeps on giving. And even though we all were talking about it and we're having conversations about it, we're never getting anything done. And now when the when the committee voted not to move that out, uh, that really precluded having a, a solid conversation uh, directly related to a bill uh, for the remainder of the session. I'm going to continue to talk about it. I said on Thursday that I was going to. We are going to find time to talk about it on the Senate floor. But uh, I would say the odds are very long that anything gets done this year. Well, let's talk about a couple of issues that have, be, that have perked up in the controversy scale in the mm-hmm. Missouri Senate. The first one is establishing a prescription drug monitoring database. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a couple of proponents of this on the show, including Holly Rader of Sykeston, mm-hmm. who have talked about this idea as a way to combat the, the opioid crisis. Um, I saw that you voted against the bill that came out of the Senate. It's now in conference right now um, mm-hmm. at this moment of this taping. I'd like you to kind of explain your perspective on this because I've been following this on and off for a number of years, and I have noticed that among the more conservative Republican senators, there there does seem to be a deep philosophical opposition to this idea, and it, it was kind of that kind of showed through with the fact that it wasn't just Rob Schaff voting against the final version of the Senate bill; it was I think about twelve or thirteen other people. So, mm-hmm. what's kind of your take on that issue? Well, when it comes to uh, a PDMP program, first let me let me say that Representative Rader, her her heart is in the right place here. She's trying to solve uh, what is a threat to our public safety, which is the opioid epidemic, and it is within the bounds of government to have this particular discussion. Unfortunately, what we're talking about is creating a database that, in many other states, has not shown to be the panacea to fix this problem uh, that that we would like it to be. And whenever there's a crisis and uh, families are being torn torn apart by something as devastating as opioid addiction, there is a strong desire to do something. And oftentimes that something we find is uh, sounds good, but it's not nearly as effective as we want it to be. And it may be causing other vulnerabilities that we're talking about. So in the case of PDMP, we're creating a database of folks that have gotten prescription drugs and created a vulnerability for their privacy information that in at, at least a half a dozen states have been compromised and released to the general public. So my concern as a conservative in my objection is that I believe that the value uh, that we may get from a PDMP program is outweighed by the vulnerability that we would be placing the private data of information onto a government database. And I don't know of a government database that's truly invulnerable to being hacked. And I, and I think that's an invasion of privacy. And when you add to the fact that, you know, you would think that if we're the only state, and we are the only state right now that doesn't have a statewide PDMP program, you would think that we must have the worst opioid uh, death rates in the country 
if having a PDMP was uh, such a difference maker. And the reality is we're actually closer to middle of the pack. You know, West Virginia, which has a PDMP program, has three times the death rate that we have here in the state of Missouri. So just passing a PDMP program is not necessarily indicative that we're going to see dramatic improvements. In fact, a lot of times what we're seeing is a sl an increase in, P in opioid death rates following the implementation of a PDMP. So, um, I'm not convinced that it's something that's going to have the effect we want it to have. I've been opposed to it. You're right. You, you had a good update there. It went. It did pass out of the Senate. We got some some good amendments onto that bill. It went to the House. They rejected it. It went into conference committee. But if the conference committee comes out and says that uh, they would like to try to pass this without the amendments that we got onto that bill, I think I'll just say I think there's going to be a real long conversation about that. I was just going to ask that question um, because one of the things that I, I I mean I follow kind of the art of filibustering in the Senate pretty closely, and mm -hmm. when Senator Schaff said he wasn't going to filibuster this bill anymore, mm -hmm. a lot of people took that as indication. Well, you know, PDMP is going to pass. This mm -hmm. long debate is over. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought that since there's other people in the Missouri uh, Senate like yourself and maybe like Senator Andrew Koenig of, of Manchester and some other Republicans as well, like Will Krause of, of Lee Summit, mm -hmm. who are also opposed to this issue, I, I didn't really think that this was necessarily an end to the opposition. And from what you just told me, you're saying that if, if the House takes off the Senate amendments, then it may run into some pretty substantial opposition in the Senate. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's really fair to say. And, and you mentioned Andrew Koenig, uh, who's a fellow freshman of mine. And let me throw another name out there, Denny Hoskins, uh, who represents the 21st. All three of us were very engaged in that conversation last Thursday on Holy Thursday uh, with the PDMP. Uh, and three of the four freshmen uh, of the Republican class are very opposed to this measure. So, you know, Rob, Sh Senator Schaff, I think, is... Um, had gotten to a point where he wasn't sure that there were going to be the folks that were going to carry on this fight. So he was trying to find a better solution. But I think what we're coming to the realization is there may be a much more long-term uh, block of folks in place that are willing to oppose this if um, if those amendments get removed. Let's also talk about Real ID, which um, is an effort to tr I, 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 I have a hard time sometimes explaining this because <laughs> it's not something that I've covered particularly closely. But the long and short of it is, right after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the federal government passed some standards that driver's licenses have to have to get on things like airplanes or get into a military base. Mm -hmm. In 2009, the Missouri legislature passed a bill basically saying that the state wasn't going to comply with this law. And much to my surprise, and something that's never really been explained to me, the Democratic governor, Jane Nixon, signed this into law, and we're at a point possibly where a lot of Missourians may not be able to get on a plane without passports. Mm -hmm. So there's been legislation that's been proposed aimed at complying with real ID by offering people a choice between uh, real ID compliant IDs and non-real ID compliant IDs. I'd like to get your perspective on this, again, from the perspective of, of a more conservative member of the, the Senate caucus, because I'm getting a sense that you're not really that crazy about the potential quote unquote solutions to this idea. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good way to put it. I've been opposed to uh, real ID and let's kind of break this down a little bit with what's going on here. What we have here is the federal government demanding compliance on an issue, in this case the issuance of a state ID, 
and demanding certain compliance items on that ID and in in retaliation that if we don't comply with the mandate of the federal government, uh, they're, the federal government is saying that they're willing to deny lawful, uh, law-abiding citizens uh, boarding of airplanes for private and commercial use uh, as punishment. Now, I have a lot of problems with just that, that, that couple of statements right there. I don't know, and I, I used to be in the military, so I understand the effort that the governor, government is trying, the federal government is trying to put in place to protect us from folks that want to get on airplanes and do bad things. But the reality is no one has been able to identify to me how maintaining, as one of the requirements of Real ID, source documents and birth certificates in digital format uh, of our citizens in the state of Missouri, how that's going to make us more safe from terrorist attacks moving forward. No one's been able to explain that. And at the same time, we're being told that the federal government in Washington, D.C. is willing to deny boarding of lawful citizens to aircraft for their, their private use. I have a lot of problems to that from a perspective of the separation of the federal and the state government. I think that the federal government, this is the third waiver that they've given the state that currently expires in January of 18. And the reason I think that we're seeing the third waiver is that the federal government is not actually prepared to begin denying boarding of citizens, lawful citizens on airplanes. So I, I think that's a lot of saber rattling from uh, from the federal government. I think that there, there doesn't seem to be a good justification for why we need to maintain source documents in a database and again, create the kind of privacy vulnerability that we were talking about with respect to PDMP programs. And until I see such justification, I'm, I intend to continue my opposition to it. You know, we talk about a lot of these issues in the Missouri legislature kind of in a vacuum mm -hmm. sometimes. I'm, I'm not really sure if we're doing that right now, but I can, but with that backdrop in mind, I've actually run into a lot of people that don't follow Missouri politics mm -hmm. particularly closely who are really concerned with the prospect of not being able to board airplanes. Mm -hmm. um, they, they point to the fact that getting a passport is really expensive and time consuming. Mm -hmm. And I think some proponents of the, the quote unquote solution that I mentioned have pointed out that if the federal government does follow through with denying people with these types of IDs on airplanes, people have to use a passport. You, you have to send your birth certificate to get a passport and a lot of sensitive documentation anyways. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to the people that are concerned about the prospect that not doing something about this issue is going to affect their ability to travel places? If, if they're truly concerned about that and we get, we get calls in my office, I, I want to make something perfectly clear. This Missouri legislature is not any in any way interested in preventing someone from entering federal installation or preventing someone from getting on an airplane. If there's a concern, what I'd say to those folks here in Missouri is calling our office is not the fix. Calling your federal legislature is the fix. I think a great question for our federal legislators is why are you as the federal government trying to deny boarding to lawful citizens to get onto airplanes? I, I recognize that uh, you know whether it's if we're not comfortable with passports and I understand the process there, looking at where the source of the problem is coming from is really how we need to address it. The source of the problem is not the state of Missouri. The source of the problem is the federal government in Washington, D.C. So in the last few minutes that we have, I do want to get kind of some of your more broad assessments of a, serving in the Senate, because this is your first year, mm -hmm. and kind of how the Senate has operated in the first time in a while where Republicans have the executive and legislative branches in control. 
Um, so let's let's start off with with a of that question. What has been kind of your observations and experience of of joining a legislative body after never serving in public office before? Well, uh, my first observation is that what we see a lot of the divisiveness and negativity between Republicans and Democrats uh, in the campaign season on TV and on the radio doesn't exist in that uh, negative form when you're actually working side by side with your colleagues who are Republican and Democrat. So uh, what what's been I think if 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 someone if any given citizen were to come down to Missouri and become a legislator, I think they would also be struck by the fact that uh, what we have here, not Democrats and Republicans, but we have just different people from different parts of the state that are trying to work together to solve problems. And yeah, there are a lot of philosophical fault lines when we talk about labor reform or educational reform, but I can tell you, for every one issue that divides along partisan lines, there are 20 or 30 issues where there is no such divide. So. I've been really struck about the willingness of all my colleagues to develop relationships and work together. And you're right, we don't agree all the time, but our personal working relationships are are very strong. And and I've been asking this to both Republicans and Democrats, their impressions of of Governor Greitens, um, especially members of the Senate. I, I think I said pretty much when he entered office, he has the opportunity to be probably the most impactful Republican governor in Missouri history. Nobody who has entered the executive branch from the Republican side, has had such large legislative majorities to accomplish things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's pretty early in his tenure, and I'm not willing to say, you know, at this point, before the end of the session, when I'm sure lots of bills are going to get passed, that, you know, nothing has been done or only right to work is an accomplishment. But my, my question is, what has been kind of the relationship over the last few months between the Republican caucus and the governor? Because I know that there has been some friction on certain issues. It seems like we talked about before, there's some disagreements over how to structure the budget. How are the two sides working together, given the backdrop that there is the possibility there to accomplish longstanding Republican goals? Well, first, I you know, I describe it as improving. And I think that uh, we got off to a little bit of rocky start over on the Senate side with some of the, the issues that arose early on in the session. But, you know, especially recently, the governor has really come out and been very uh, forthcoming and present uh, with some of the issues that are going on here in the legislature. And I'll give you a couple examples, especially on education. Uh, he's been very engaged in the debate on the, on our ESA, our savings account bill. He's been very engaged in our charter bill. He's been very engaged on the labor reform issues that are facing uh, the state. So I, I think that, uh, you know, he's new to public office as well. And so there was a period of time where he was kind of getting settled. And now it, I feel like it's uh, full steam ahead here. And I, I'm very excited about what we're going to get accomplished. And I think that he's engaged in, in that relationship right now is probably it's, it's better than it's ever been at any point in the session. So I'm encouraged by that. But, uh, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. And as you mentioned, what, what you're really describing is there's high expectations here because we have a, we're at a historic moment in the history of the state. So there we feel pressure that we've got to pass some of these agenda items that have been held up by a Democratic governor for many years. And, you know, uh, Governor Greitens is he's the guy in the chair. And uh, we believe we're going to get it done. My final question for you. Uh, after, uh, how, how many hours do you plan on sleeping tonight after last night? <laughs> As many as possible. Yeah. Well, as <laughs> as somebody who has a, a three-year-old and who has to work late, too, I, I guess I feel your pain, though I did not have to go to sleep at like 7 a.m. last night after covering two inaugurations. So I can't really relate to what you're going through. 
but I am very appreciative that you came on and talked about these issues with such little sleep. And I think you did a bang up job considering the circumstances. Thank you. Uh, so Thank for you. so for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And how would we follow you on Twitter or any other social media apparatus? You betcha. I'm at uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Bill Eigel. And I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bill Eichel. So all of our information, we have town halls every week. All of our information is posted on our Facebook page. Uh, I've seen the continual uh, move from uh, regular digital media to the more the, the Facebook and the uh, the Twitter accounts. But uh, we're always available, and I'm, I'm always available to any of my constituents. Very good. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Yeah.